When faced with the temptation to live according to the wisdom of the world, to live in friendship with the world, we may resist the devil and we may anticipate his response. That is our posture toward him. There is a posture that we take toward the Lord as well in this, and there is a divine response that we are to anticipate. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. We're continuing a message we began last time, and that is all about choosing the right friendship. And Jonathan, you said that there's a posture that we are to have as we develop, cultivate a friendship with the Lord and a response that we are to anticipate. What is the posture? What's the response? Well, there's a lovely invitation and a promise that comes with it in our passage today. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And isn't that a, isn't that a lovely thought that yeah. if we will draw near to the Lord as he invites us, as, as we will come to him in faith, in Jesus, draw near in our heart, draw near through repentance, draw near in our trust of him, he will draw near to us. So there's no reason, since Jesus has died and offers us forgiveness through his blood, cleansing through his blood, there's no reason that God should remain at a distance from us. The invitation is there. If we will draw near, he will draw near. And that's a very precious promise, particularly if you're someone who feels that God is far off, that God is at a distance. And and it may be that there are those listening now, and that's exactly how you feel, and you'd love to be near to God. Well, listening closely to what James has to say to us today, because the invitation is there to draw near. And so for the person who says, I've got a messy background, I've screwed up big time, I know that I've sinned against God. He still wants us to draw near? He does. And in James's teaching here in in chapter 4 of his letter, he unpacks a little bit more what it means to draw near to God. And it, it does mean coming with a mournful heart over our sin, mourning our sin, humbling ourselves in our attitude where we might have said, you know, I'm right and... God's teaching is wrong. I've got it right, and I'm not going to live his way. And actually, we need to humble ourselves and say, no, I've, I've been wrong, and God is right. And that's part of drawing near to him. It involves repentance, but the invitation is there. And there is, there is no history that God cannot deal with through the work of Christ. What a great truth for us to think about as we begin our time together. If you can, grab a Bible. Join us in the book of James, chapter 4, as we continue choosing the right friendship. Here is Jonathan. We can either pursue friendship with the world or we can pursue friendship with God, but we cannot pursue both. I remember once a preacher speaking of this dynamic in terms of attempting to do the spiritual splits. Down the river, down the Rido near our home, there's a boat launch with a little dock. And during the summer, people are coming and going there all day on nice days, launching boats and loading their families into the boat for a day out on the river. And it can be quite entertaining, actually, just to watch the goings-on down there on a lazy summer afternoon. Now, inevitably, whenever you have a boat and a dock, what will happen from time to time is that a person will be in the process of stepping onto the boat or stepping off the boat. And while they're doing that, the boat will start drifting away from the dock. You've seen it happen. Maybe you've experienced that. Perhaps it wasn't tied up properly. Perhaps a large wave came along just as they were stepping on. And you know full well that the situation cannot be maintained for very long without being resolved. (laughs) The hapless person has one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat. 
and the two are growing further and further and further apart. And quite intentionally, but nonetheless quite amusingly, they find themselves doing the literal splits. Pretty soon they will need to commit both feet to one place or things will end rather awkwardly for them. <laughs> I suspect there will be a number here among us, even today, who imagine that it is possible to keep a foot in two places. To have a foot in the kingdom of this world and a foot in the kingdom of God, who imagine that it is possible in the long term to maintain the spiritual splits, to keep that going for a good long time. You may not have thought of it in those particular terms, but essentially, if that is what you're doing, that is the reality of it. You know, you, you've got your sense of commitment to the Lord. You believe that the gospel is true and you want to be saved. You're even willing to serve him in some ways. But you have drunk pretty deeply at the well of the wisdom of the world. You know that the passions for self, the passions to please yourself and to fulfill your own personal ambitions and to get your own way, the desires for the things that you want and the determination to do whatever it is you need to do to get those things, to push others out of your way to obtain them, these, these drive you. And they shape your, your life more than you would like to admit. You've got, a, you've got a foot in the Lord's camp, okay. And you've got a foot in the world's camp. And you'd like to play both sides. And you think you're flexible enough maybe to get, get away with it. You, you've assumed for a good long time that you are getting away with it. And you will get away with it with this half-hearted commitment to the Lord. And you've assumed, you know, he's not going to notice. And even if he does, he's not going to mind. He'll s smile down benignly from above as this goes on. And James says quite simply, the Lord does mind. He, he notices and he minds. Notice with me verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? The Old Testament teaches us that God is a jealous God in the sense that he desires the exclusive affection and worship of his people. He's jealous in that way. He won't share us. The principle is stated right there in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and verse 5, referring to idols. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The Lord is jealous for the exclusive loyalty of his people. He'll not tolerate a division of that loyalty. And James summarizes the teaching of the scriptures on this point in this way. And it's a summary rather than a quotation. But he summarizes it this way. God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has placed within us. That is, over our inner person. Not the Holy Spirit, I don't think here. But the human spirit that he has created and placed within each of us. The inner me, the person at my core, my desires, my commitments, my loves. He yearns jealously over the Spirit that he might have each of us in our totality and our completeness. That's his desire. That is his insistence. And so, friends, we need to ask, are you attempting to do the spiritual splits? And am I? Are you attempting to hold on to a kind of Christian commitment, a sort of manageable brand of Christianity that's not too exacting, not too demanding, while also at the same time living as a friend of the world, following its wisdom, serving self and desire and passion, pushing others out of your way and leaving lots of damage all the time in your wake? If so, you are treating the Lord not as your friend, says James, but as your enemy. If so, you're playing a dangerous game one that cannot end well? If so, 
you need to hear what James has to say to us next. Friendship with the world that causes fights among people, we see that. It makes people enemies of God, that's sobering. And finally, it calls for humble repentance, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word but is one of the most wonderful words in the Bible. On a number of occasions, the scriptures lay out for us what we deserve and how things ought to go for us based on our own behavior. And the word but then suddenly appears within the discussion and it paves the way for a gospel-shaped intervention, a radical change of direction driven by the kindness of God. It becomes the unexpected and the undeserved turning point, and that's exactly what we see going on here. See, the truth of the matter is that none of us is free of the outlook and the attitude of the world. There are elements of worldliness in each one of us in this sense, and we deserve each one of us to be cast off as enemies of God. There's no question about it. God yearns jealously for our entire spirit, but we are so often, are we not, divided in heart and in mind, so often flawed and failing in outlook and behavior. But, but, and here's the wonder of it, He gives more grace, more grace than we deserve, more grace than we have sin more grace than we have compromise, more grace than we have unfaithfulness within us. He gives more grace. And because he's so very, very gracious, he opens the door to us to be in restored fellowship with him, even when we've slipped into worldliness. Here, James quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, And he reminds us that while God opposes the proud, opposes those who will not humble themselves before him and admit their faults, he nonetheless gives grace to the humble. He shows his grace to those who will recognize their sin and their failure, who will turn to him for help and take steps to make things right. Now, we need to know how to do that in practical terms. That's what comes next. And so James, he tells us. He knows we need to know, and so he tells us. Here is what that response looks like. It looks like, verse 7, submitting yourself to the Lord, saying, Lord, I I see, now from your word, I see that I've been flirting with the world, listening to its wisdom, living its way. Lord, here I am before you. I'm, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm willing to listen to your wisdom once more. I'm willing, by the help of your spirit, to live your way. And in doing that, we then resist the devil, says James. Notice here, once again, James has introduced the forces of evil into the discussion. He did so when we were considering our words. Do you remember this? Chapter 3 and verse 6. And he told us that ugly and ungodly words have their origin in hell itself. He did it again in chapter 3 and verse 15 where he said the wisdom of the world is actually demonic in nature. It's not neutral. It is wicked and it is dark. And in resisting that wisdom and in turning from that way of life, we are actually resisting the devil himself. That's the implication here. That's what this means. And with the instruction to resist the devil comes a promise. If you resist him, he will flee away from you. 
As believers, we can swing between these two extremes of obsessing over the devil and ignoring him completely. As C.S. Lewis once wisely observed, both those extremes please the devil very much. If we're on the side of ignoring him completely, as we might be, these words from James, they are actually a help to us because they remind us that the devil is active in seeking to influence our thinking and our behavior. We need to be mindful of that. We need to be aware of it. And we need to be energetic in countering his work. If we fall on the other end of the spectrum, as we might, and and we tend to obsess about the devil, often that obsession will be linked to a kind of fear of him, even a terror. And I'm sure he delights in that. I'm sure C.S. Lewis is, is, is right. But James teaches us here that the devil is actually a coward. We need to know that. He's like the bully in the schoolyard. All you need to do is to to resist him, to stand up to him, to say no to him, and he's going to run away scared. We need to recognize that the devil is real. He's God's personal enemy, and he is our personal enemy. He is active. He is seeking to undermine the work of God in your life and in my life. He is evil. His intentions are always to disrupt, to disturb, and to destroy But all that having been said, we don't cower in fear before him. He's no match for our Lord. And so when the Lord's people, in submission to the Lord, in that healthy place, resist the devil, his cowardice is revealed, and he turns on his heels and he runs. And so in face of the temptation to live according to the wisdom of the world, to live in friendship with the world, we may resist the devil and we may anticipate his response. That is our posture toward him. And that is the predictable response. There is a posture that we take toward the Lord as well in this. And there is a divine response that we are to anticipate, James tells us. In fact, James has a promise for us, not only of how the devil will respond, but also how the Lord will respond. And notice that with me, verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and part of a message called Choosing the Right Friendship. We're going to get back to this look at James chapter 4 in just a moment. By the way, if you ever miss a broadcast, you can come and listen at our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. And while you're at the website, you can check out our weekly devotional material from Jonathan. Again, our website address to find out more about Encounter the Truth and to listen to any broadcast you missed is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, we are in James chapter 4, so let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. In our home, we've got an old dining room table. You may have one like this. The main surface is in two pieces with a division right down the middle. The two halves of the surface sit on a kind of track with gears, I think. And the idea is that you can separate them to make space to insert a leaf to expand the table if you have a big group coming for Christmas or something like that. And the way the mechanism works under the table is that if you pull at one side, I'm sure you're meant to have people at both sides, but if you pull at one side, the other side will pull away in an equal distance to keep the thing balanced on the, on the structure below. So you've got the correct space for inserting the leaf. Similarly, when you then remove the leaf on Boxing Day or whatever, and you need to put the table back to its smaller size, you can push on one side of the table, and the, the other surface will come back toward the middle in equal measure. When you and I pull back from the Lord in waywardness or rebellion or, or sin, we do place distance between ourselves and the Lord in terms of our fellowship. We, we push him away as we pull away ourselves. And if we're toying with friendship with the world, 
As we do that, our friendship with the Lord is undermined. There is a relational coolness and distance. And I suspect many of us will know exactly what that feels like, what it looks like. And I suspect that there could be a number who are living in that place even today. You're a believer. You, you know the Lord, but there is that distance. You're aware of it. You feel it. And if you're honest, you probably know exactly why it is the case. There's a particular sin in your life. There's something going on, and it has created distance. And you've been fully aware of that dynamic perhaps for some time. You, you feel the relational coolness. You, you feel that the Lord is not as near as He once was. Ever felt like that? And if you're living in that situation for some time, perhaps living in some kind of rebellion, I don't know, some kind of hardness of heart, you may really be asking yourself the question, can things ever be restored? Can things ever be as they once were, as I remember them in better times? And if that's you and you're asking that question, and I suspect some will be, you need to hear the promise of verse 8. This is a promise that echoes in a number of other places in the Bible. This is part of the Bible's consistent presentation of the character and the behavior of God. This is who he is. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Think of the table. The two halves, they're on this track together. They are bound together by metal gears. If one side moves in, the other side moves in equal measure. And that's what the Lord has said he will do. We are bound to him in covenant relationship. That is not broken by our waywardness. We are not unsaved by our waywardness. But if our fellowship is cooled, if we've pulled back, there is a distance. But the Lord, he is willing to draw near once more. Now, as I consider this and as I look at what James is saying, the striking thing to me is that the ball is very much in our court. Do you notice that in the way the passage flows? The Lord is ready. The Lord is willing to draw near to us. If We will draw near to him. He's ready to receive us back in warmth of fellowship, to renew the closeness of it. It's stated as a promise to claim very clearly, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the invitation. And I wonder, I just wonder if that's precisely what you need to do today. I wonder if you know him, but feel rather far from him at the present time. I wonder actually if you're living at a distance, feeling the misery of that, and there's nowhere more miserable to live than in that place. And you're longing to come near once more. Well, if that's you, if that's your situation, the invitation is there, the willingness is there, the promise is there. But notice what it looks like to take the step now of drawing near to God again. James spells out the mechanics. He's so practical. How will those gears turn and the closeness be renewed? Middle of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is James saying? He is saying, deal with the sin. That's what he's saying. Deal with the sin that's keeping you at a distance from the Lord. If you want to draw near to him, you need to give up the rebellion that is keeping him at a distance from you. Failing to do that, refusing to do that, presuming that it would be possible to renew fellowship without doing that. It's like the, the cheating husband who says to his wife, let's, let's try and make things, you know, as they once were back in the, in the good old days. I mean, you need to know, I'm not going to give up the affair or anything. No, I want to maintain that. But can we not try to get along like we used to in the good old days? Well, actually, no. <laughs> no. You give up the affair, and then maybe there is a conversation to be had. Deal with the sin. And this needs to be not a superficial thing, but it needs to be a deep repentance, verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There will be no forward movement in the Christian life until there is a deep sense of conviction of sin, a deep mourning over sin, a deep hatred of sin. I can tell you, you will remain entirely stuck in your discipleship if the Lord does not bring you to a point of mourning over your sin. There must be, in fact, a sense of wretchedness over it. That's the language that James uses, a sense of wretchedness before the Lord can restore and renew you. And in that place, painful though it may be, you find the starting point for growth and renewal in the Christian life. The, the moment of wretchedness, I'll tell you, it's a hard moment. It's a tough place to be. I sometimes have the challenging privilege of walking with people who are in that place and living in that moment. And often it feels like a time of terrible terrible darkness for them. But you know, I tend to feel it as a time of health and a time of hope. I worry so much more for a believer who is not weighed down and never seems to be ever weighed down by any concern for sin, who is never mourning a failure. No, the believer who knows seasons of lowliness in this way is a believer who is ultimately going to grow in godliness and who demonstrates a sensitivity to the state of their fellowship with the Lord. The place of lowliness is a place of safety, and it's the place where the Lord can use you and, in fact, will use you. Notice the promise of verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, says James, and he will exalt you. It is a principle of the Christian life that the way up is actually first down. It is a paradoxical principle, unlike anything known in the world, but it is how the Lord is pleased to operate. He must bring us low, before he will raise us up. And the dangerous place for the believer is not in falling low before the Lord, not in grieving sin. No, the place of danger is actually the place of glibness, of feeling content in worldliness, of enjoying that friendship with the world and being unconcerned about our friendship with the Lord. That's the place of danger. I think it was the shepherd boy in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress who sang his little song, maybe you know this, He That Is Down need fear no fall, he that is low no pride, he that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. And James says, get low before the Lord. Humble yourself, and from there he will raise you up, he will draw you near. Friend, is this the call that you need to hear today? I suspect for some, maybe for many, it is. You've been living as the world's friend and you've been playing fast and loose with the Lord. That's the reality of it, even though you know him. Won't you draw near to him once more today? Won't you humble yourself before him that he might raise you up once more? And if you don't know him, there is an invitation. There's an invitation here for you. The way into relationship with the Lord is actually the same as the way of restoration that we've been considering. The Lord welcomes those who humble themselves before him, who recognize their sin, who, who mourn it, and who will turn from it. Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin, and he offers forgiveness, and he offers cleansing to all who will come to him and trust in him. And maybe today you see this as your need. That's where you are. And the promise, it is true for you. Draw near to God in repentance and in faith, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself before him, and he will raise you up in forgiveness 
and even in life eternal. Jonathan Griffiths wrapping up this message called Choosing the Right Friendship here on Encounter the Truth. Our series is called Doers of the Word. And if you missed any broadcast in this series, you can always come and listen online at EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also give a gift of support to the ministry there because that is how we stay on this station. We're able to bring you Jonathan's teaching because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book called Know Your Enemy. You know, as a follower of Jesus we battle against sin, against the world, and against the devil. And that battle is constantly raging. And even though we may be aware that there's an enemy, sometimes we're caught off guard and we end up running for cover rather than advancing confidently like well-equipped soldiers. We want you to know how you can know your enemy and have victory in your battle against sin. That's why we want to send you a copy of this book by Graham Bynum. You can give your gift of any amount and request a copy of Know Your Enemy. Give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or when you call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or again, our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks to our producer, Mark Greta. For Jonathan, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.